Buenos días. Hola. Larry, welcome back. I'm glad to have you back with me again today. Um, again, we're talking about all sorts of fun stuff on the Writer Dojo, and we're and I know that you, like I, are super appreciative of all of our freaking awesome supporters. We get some great, great supporters, and they send us really good questions. Exactly. And so today, what I want to talk about is, is some of these questions. Um, now, we had two questions from um, uh, from a couple of our supporters, Brennan and his um, and his brother, uh, whose name I can't remember for the life of me, uh, Aaron. That's what it is. So Brennan and Aaron, they sent in questions that actually were um, were the same. Is basically yeah. they're both asking the same question. Very similar. Yeah. It's almost like they're twins or something. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Here all week. All right. So so the gist of it, I'm not going to read well, the whole so, thing. So this episode that we got some business questions and we got one that's kind of a marketing question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which so it's kind of related. So business and marketing. A little bit of writing about length, but then so mm-hmm. we have so we basically have like three different questions today. Yeah. Okay, so, but the first one we want to tackle has to do with, this is just straight up business, okay? And this is nuts and bolts business um, where Brennan and Aaron have received some pretty bad advice. So the gist of it, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Gist of it is um, uh, they've started receiving money for some short story sales. Kudos. That's awesome. Kick butt, right? High fives. Um, And uh, they went and had their taxes done at H&R Block. And that's the first problem. Okay. Steve and I, you guys have background. We were both professional accountants before we were right. writers. And so, um, we, we've dealt with the bad quote unquote professional accountants at H&R Block. And we've dealt with the good accountants at like CPA firms. Yeah. Uh, and we've done our own taxes, yada, yada. Okay. The whole, the whole, the whole gamut. Yeah. We've, we've, we've done, done everything. Corporate taxes. We've done corporate taxes. We've been audited so gajillions many, of times. So many times by so many entities. Uh-huh. And, um, so what the person did, um, what this, this kind of sort of tax person told, um, either Brennan or Aaron was that because that they might be in some hot water with the IRS for not registering themselves as a business while submitting these stories for publication. And, and there's, there's an implied threat in, in here from the tax guy on behalf of the IRS, basically saying like, well, you have to register as a business right now or you're going to be screwed. And mm, no. that's bull crap. Yeah. No. That's bull crap. So Brandon and Aaron, don't listen to that dude. He's a terrible accountant. Um, go somewhere else. Um, I don't know. Are you, I don't know if they're local. Are they local to us? Uh, no. They're not local to us? Somewhere in the West. Okay. Wyoming uh, or Montana. If, if you guys were super local to us, we could have recommended you actually a really good place. Yeah. I, we have a, if you're in Utah, we have a CPA firm. We recommend all the writer friends we exactly. know. Exactly. Actually, we both use the same one, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. So here's the trouble. Um, people that work at H&R Block um, in places like that, they're not really any better than me or you just doing our, our taxes on TurboTax yeah. at home. They're not any better than that. Well, because what this comes down to is what the IRS actually cares about is are you, uh, are you paying taxes on your income? That's right. And so if you have sold a short story, you know, if you sold a couple of short stories, you've made a few hundred bucks, you're not going to go incorporate yet. Right. 
but here's the thing. Just put that on your taxes. Just Yeah, just report it. Just report it. Report the um, income. Pay it's the taxes. Such a, especially when it's a small amount. Um, you got to understand the way the tax code in the U.S. works. When it's very small amounts of money, um, there's almost no tax on it. The way the tax code scales, um, the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. Okay? And so when you make almost nothing on it, it doesn't really move the needle one way or the other. Yeah, now we talked about this a little bit in our episode, our first business episode. What's going to happen is the uh, you're going to incorporate uh, when it's a benefit to you. Correct. Um, and so that's when you're going to want to f- form a business entity. That's where, you're, honestly, I would recommend going and meeting with a CPA. Mm-hmm. They can walk you through all the steps. It's really easy to set yourself up as a business. Yeah, they'll start walk you through easy. the steps. Because you need to file paperwork with a few different things depending on your state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll usually have a state office of corporations yeah. of some kind. You'll need to file with your state tax agency. You'll probably need to file with maybe your county or jurisdiction you live in. Yeah, uh, probably. I think because like for, for your property taxes, because mm-hmm. there is, they'll want to know, but the thing is almost, I, I can't speak for every jurisdiction in America, obviously, oh, yeah. but, uh, cause some of, you know, there's California and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the, the cesspit of all when business. we used to do, when Steve and I worked for the same, uh, same defense contractor, we would have like books of rules for various States. And they're like, you know, the, you know, the it's width of your finger. And then there was California. It was like four phone books stapled together. It's just yeah. awful. Um, but so basically you're going to incorporate, you're going to fill out this paperwork and that's going to give you a tax benefit. And that's mm-hmm. where you like, your writing will be through the corporation and then your corporation will pay you. Exactly. The, the whole point of incorporating is to, um, is to receive, is to receive a sort of tax break and to offer yourself legal protection. Yeah. It's a separation of you as an individual right. from a separate business entity that mm-hmm. conducts business. Right. So here's the thing. If say you're Brandon Sanderson, we talked about Brandon Sanderson earlier. Now that dude, that dude definitely has a CPA doing his, doing his crap. Jeez, oh, um, he yeah. doesn't, if he doesn't, it, oh, I'd be, sure, I'd be I'm absolutely sure shocked. I'm sure he, he definitely does. does. Yeah. Um, but say he didn't, he could still do it. Okay. Yeah. As long as he declares that income. as long as he declares all that income, he's okay. Now he's going to get completely hosed on taxes oh, because gosh, of the yeah. quantities of money he's making. Um, yeah, I'd say that's top bracket. That's dead. <laughs> That's beyond, yeah, that's easily top bracket. Um, But he doesn't have to. Like he could, as long as he is honestly reporting all of that stuff. And at that level, he'd probably get audited. Um, Oh, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. But once you start. um, Can you imagine being like some just dude filing your your 1040 and under miscellaneous income? You put 40 million? $40 million in miscellaneous income. (laughs) I guarantee an auditor, an auditor is going to crash through your skylight having repelled from a helicopter. They're like, they're like either he's a drug dealer or he's a terrorist. One of the two. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, honestly, this, that's actually a really good question. And, and my biggest thing, I don't have an exact number to give people like so when they should. The, the last number I heard. For me, it was like 30 grand. I think it was 30. That's when I did it. Um, and. And I believe that the dudes at the CPA firm that you and I know, um, I believe they echoed that to me a little while later. Yeah. Somewhere around between 30 and 50 is what they so said. So this, this was like, this was like, geez, like 10 years ago. Yeah. 
that, and then I think I've made, I made, I got to like, I was making about 30,000 in writing income and that's when I incorporated. Yeah. Now the whole reason, um, now specifically most authors, um, yeah, most authors, I can think of some other scenarios, but this is what CPAs are for, but, uh, and neither of us are CPAs and don't take this as actual legal that's, advice. That's true. This is not, this is just us two guys talking. This, this is, is just not us, legal advice. Just two dudes chatting. Our only advice is that you go talk to a CPA. Um, you incorporate doing, um, as an S corp, it's a very specific type of legal entity. It's a small corporation. Correct. And what this does, the whole point in doing this is so that when you make money, um, as a corporation, um, the corporation itself doesn't really get taxed, um, cause it's all passed through to the individuals underneath it. Okay. Um, the employees or the share, basically the shareholders. Okay. Now you can be an S corp and you be the only share, the hundred percent shareholder. So by default, all of the corporation's income is passed on to you. Yeah. But what this distinction does guys is it prevents you think of your day jobs. Okay. On your day jobs, you're, 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 your W2 employee, you get your check. And the first thing you notice is you were supposed to get a thousand dollars, but instead because of taxes, you got like three. Withholdings. Because, because withholdings. Yep. Okay. We're talking, and, and the main ones that, that the S Corp impacts, we're talking about Medicare and Social Security. Okay. Pick a foot of soda. Yep. And what all of this does is, um, in a normal job, you, there, there's a total burden of about, I think it's like 15 or 16%, um, of total burden of tax that is owed to the government out of your pay. In a regular job where you're a W-2 employee, the employer pays half of that on your behalf and you pay the other half out of your paycheck. Yep. Okay. When you're a corporation. When you're, when you're, when you are, um, if you are a, just a regular 1099 employee, um, say, you know, say you do $600 of work for your buddy and, and so, um, and he pays you and you have because it's over $600, you therefore have to report it as a 1099 on your, on your taxes. Cause that's the cutoff for the IRS guys. Um, if it's just to you, you yourself and you, um, you are paying self-employment tax, which is the full 15 or whatever, 16%. No one is paying half of that on your behalf. Yep. That part sucks. But especially when you first do it, but when you're an S corp, you bypass that self-employment portion of the tax. All right. I'm thinking here. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you, mm. you that, that for the shareholders. Okay. Now keep in mind, I have, I have, I, I've no, I haven't been an accountant for like way longer than Steve. So he's right. I'm going with whatever Steve says. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, there, there's always weird things going on and stuff, but, but in general, the whole point of this, of, of incorporating an S corp is so that the, when the pass through income comes to you, it isn't given to you like you're self-employed. Okay. So you're avoiding some of the double taxation that comes with, with being just a regular schmo. Yeah. This is also for the first $120,000. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Something yes. like that of your income. Yeah. Th and, cut. and all of those weird cutoffs and everything. I don't freaking know those. Which this is, which, which honestly guys, if you're making 120 grand off your writing, you, you better be incorporated. Definitely need to be incorporated mm -hmm. at that point. But in general, the whole gist of this and, and look, some of my data could be a little wrong. 
whatever. Yeah, because I'm trying to remember. It's been too dang long. It's been I've too done long. Because honestly, guys, I actually take a great deal of pride in doing my own taxes, having, being, mm-hmm. having been an accountant and as a writer. But then I got to the point where I was losing money by not having a CPA because yeah. CPAs keep up on the changes and never, something changes every year. It, well, when it comes to tax law, it changes daily. Yeah, um, it's horrible. Just honestly, guys, if you're making decent money at this and it's getting to where you're thinking about, you need to like do this as a job and switch over to being a writer. That's you definitely need to incorporate. Now, the other portion of this is um, you've got to understand when it comes to all this tax crap that again, it changes so frequently, um, and the laws will change here and there. At the day job, we were dealing with with a law. That literally changed um, from one day to the next, and it completely radically changed the way we're filing taxes in a certain state. Yeah, and if you're doing business in four or five different states, it gets so complicated. So at the end of the day, just the gist of this is um, when you're you're just starting out, man, you don't need to register. Don't let some flunky at H&R Block tell you that that you're going to be in trouble. No, you're still good. Yeah. Now- if you're like, if you received any royalties and you're like, I'm not reporting these royalties, they're not very much. That's a bad thing. Now, as me and Steve have said before, taxation is theft, but they're still going to throw you in jail if you don't, if you don't let them steal from you. So you need to pay your taxes. Well, one of the interesting things, um, so 1099s, basically that means you're not an official W-2 employee of a company, but you still do work for them and they pay you're you. You're a contract. You're a contract employee. Yeah. Contract. Whatever. Which is how most writers are when we collect in general. Income. Yeah, yes. exactly. So you receive that. Um, in general, if you're just a random Joe Schmo consultant, um, you know, I, I I do some financial consulting on the side here and there um, for for governments. Once you make over six hundred dollars, the company is supposed to give you a ten ninety nine form that says how much you made. Okay, and then, um, but here's the thing. Royalties doesn't matter. There's, there's no, there's no threshold. You're supposed to report all royalties. So even if it's $12, still got to report it, which is why to the point of view of, of the email, Aaron and Brennan, um, $500. Yeah. Just report it as income. It's not going to make a big difference. It's cool. So, um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get more into, there's a small writing question, and then we're going to talk about some marketing stuff, because y'all have heard enough about accounting, and that crap's boring. We'll see you. Jawan Washington was left for dead on the battlefield. Unfortunately for him, things only got worse. Soul is nothing more than a token curiosity. He has taken far from Earth and into a part of the galaxy where mankind has yet to tread. Various alien races sell him for goods, luxury items, or rot-gut alien alcohol. Finally landing in a mercenary pit somewhere on the galactic fringe, he is alone, forgotten, and destitute. But fate wasn't through with Juan just yet. When two strange aliens offer him a way out, and possibly a way back home, he jumps at the opportunity. Along the way, he discovers that there are more important things in the universe. Things like honor, courage, and vengeance. From Jason Cordova and Matt Novotny, coming April 29, 2022, The Executioners, available exclusively on Amazon. 
All right, welcome back, everybody. I know we were talking about how how boring accounting stuff is, but during the break, Larry and I ended up just talking about accounting because well, we can't help it. Yeah, because because uh, we were like, it's like I couldn't remember how something worked, and then we went off, and then it turned into us like tax planning for other writers that we know, like what we would do to. <laughs> we're like, this we need we need prepaid liabilities on the thing. We need. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, because we just recorded the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter episode. So, like, our during the break was me and Steve's tax plan if we were Brandon with $42 million <laughs> in, in cash that we all of a sudden oh, need man. to, like... Because he needs to, like, get that stuff sunk into things right now because his tax bill is going to be insane. It's going to be mind-breaking. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, I hope he's got a great CPA. Oh, man, I hope so. I'm sure he does. Okay. All right. So, so we've got... So, our next question is a two-part question. It's from the same guy. I think it's a guy. I don't know. I don't want to judge. Um, dude's got a dude or gal, whatever. It's got a I'm badass a, name uh, though. I'm not a biologist. So, <laughs> so the name is, is, uh, the person's name is Sharang, um, uh, Inamdar. I don't know how I'm pronouncing that, but anyway, the way it looks is it looks super freaking rad. Actually, Sharang, if you would like me to use your name in Son of the Black Sword, I totally will. Yeah. We just, um, so if you just, just need your permission, bro. I need your So if you're, if you're cool with that, I will totally use your because name. Because that name is perfect and it's freaking rad. That's a rad name. Yeah. So I, I don't remember if I, if I've talked about this, I, I think I talked about this on, on one of our episodes where. About naming people? About how I name people. And for a long time, what I would do is when I got spam email, I would just take the, the super absurd names and I would keep them because oh, yeah. they were often pretty cool. Yeah. And so, um, <clears throat> so this isn't a spam email, but still really cool name. Anyway. Thank you, Sharang. Um, okay, so Sharang has two questions. Um, the first part is, is is actually like a writing advice question. And then the second part has to do with marketing on the whole. So I want to start with the writing one so that we end with marketing. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right, so um, his writing question is, um, I have a problem feeling like I tend to write too short. Uh, I think I'm instinctively scared of writing in too much detail and end up overcompensating. I wanted to know how to tell if you are giving too much detail and if you are in danger of boring the reader. That's a really good question. It's a great question. And now, Larry, you know that you you know how I write. I write super terse. Yeah, and I'm pretty terse too. I'm not a super descriptive writer. Exactly. So this is a really interesting question for us. Because we're both on the lower description side of the spectrum. Now... The way I look at it is I'd rather write terse and get the crap on the page and then go back in and, and say, where have I not been clear enough? And then add to that. Over time, I've gotten to where I edit less and I write more. So mm-hmm. I spend more time writing and less time editing because that's just funner. So I'm a little more careful in the first draft. However, my rule of thumb on this, you're too terse when they're confused. Okay. Or if it's too blank. So if like, they don't know what's going on and the character is like a blank person and they're in a blank room. A blank mannequin in a white room. A blank mannequin in a white room. You you need more. Yeah. If your characters don't have anything to differentiate them other than a name, you need more. If your places all feel the same, you need more. Um, So if the reader is ever confused by the blankness, um, you need more. You need to write longer. Um, and as far as writing too long, is the reader bored? Yeah. That's the main thing. Now, how do you avoid that? Or how do you learn? This is something you're going to learn with practice. You can also learn by having people read your stuff. Well, and I think it's going to depend on kind of what kind of thing you're writing. Oh yeah. True. It depends on the genre. Yeah. I mean, 
like me, epic me, fantasy. Yeah, I was gonna say me. Me writing like uh, like a um, a supernatural thriller is very different than Brandon writing his doorstop epic fantasies. Yeah. So if you're writing doorstop epic fantasy, the readers are gonna expect quite a bit of fluff mm-hmm. and descriptive stuff. If you're writing like a big space opera, the people are gonna kind of expect more world building. If you're writing hard sci-fi, they're going to expect they're going way to expect more details. You best have a degree in physics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like a David Weber novel, no one's ever accused a David Weber novel of being terse. <laughs> or as David Weber said one time on a podcast with me, uh, David Weber will never use three words when five will do. And Larry Correa will never use three words when one will do. Right. You know? And so it's just, they both work though. Oh yeah. So we, um, so honestly, Shrang, um, the answer to that, there's not really a right answer. The main thing is like, um, make sure you give the people enough meat that there's something to bite into. You know, there's gotta be enough there that they can picture the scene in their head. Then they can picture the characters and who they are. Uh, and so if you need to fluff that up to do so, do it. Well, and this is what pre-readers are for, right? You yeah. know, especially when you're, when you're new, getting, getting a one or two pretty decent pre-readers can kind of help you through the ABCs of your story. Well, we talked about that in the episode. We talked about like writing groups and readers, but uh, mm-hmm. one of the things is when I have people read my stuff, when I was, especially when I was starting out, I wouldn't have one or two people read my stuff. I'd have 10 yeah. or 14. Yeah. And cause what I was looking for, I wasn't looking for like, if one person said, well, I was bored here. Or I, one person I was confused here. That doesn't matter. But if seven or eight of them were like, I didn't know what was going on in the scene. I definitely need to right. fix that. Well, and and you never know. I mean, you, you never know how people are going to behave. Um, now, the other part of this is um, when you're, there, there's a danger here. And that's when you're too close to your story because I, I know how I feel. Look, if, if, I'm writing, if I'm writing an action scene, I don't care. I don't worry about the action scene. Um, and, and, and you're pretty much the same way. Um, the action scene's kind of sort of write themselves for me. Usually, yeah. You know, I mean, there are always difficult ones, especially if I'm thinking of like where people are positioned and yada, yada. Yeah. The more complicated the scene, the more words I have to put into establishing that kind of thing. But, you know, you know, that's the fun part. That's the enjoyable part. But when I'm writing, you know, um, people, they're, they're traveling down the road, but they have to have a meaningful conversation. Um, or I'm having to, I'm having to shove in world building into a scene where, um, where there's not explosions happening. Um, those scenes, they write themselves slower. Like I write slower for that scene. Absolutely. And there's a danger there. There's a psychological danger and that's, well, it's taking me really long to write this scene. Therefore it's a really slow scene. Yeah. Therefore it's too wordy. I'm, I'm doing too much. I need to cut this back. And that's not necessarily the case. Yes. You know how long that scene took to unfold, but the reader does not. No, it, it's taken, maybe it took you three hours to write that scene and the reader's going to read it in 10 minutes. Yep. And for them, it's just a, it's just a little, it's a, it's a slippery slope that's done and you're, and you're through it. And they just, they don't think twice about it. They're like, like, yeah, nice pacing. Yeah. That's one of the things that I always asked when my first book came out. I always asked people like, well, what did you think of the pace of the book? Because there were sections of that book where, man, I felt like I was slogging. I think I read it in one night. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was only 70,000 words. Yeah, I think I read it in one right? night. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, in, in general, that's what happens. You know, most people read it in one or two sittings, maybe three. Um, 
But I always ask because, and, and I know you've written some scenes like this too, where you just feel like it's a freaking slog. You're like, oh, oh yeah. my gosh, I just need to get through this scene so I can get to the next action scene or I'm going to murder someone in real life. <clears throat> yeah. Honestly, you know, and usually it's a scene because there's uh, some sort of challenge. To me, there's usually like some sort of emotional note mm-hmm. that I'm trying to hit just right. And so I tend to agonize more as I write it. Mm-hmm. And it's like you said, that scene might seem really long to me because I put work into it, you know, uh, but to the reader, you know, there's a five minute read. You know? Well, and, and no one has ever, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've read a lot of your reviews, obviously, and I've read a lot of my reviews. Um, very, very rarely does someone say, oh, this was just a really slow book. You know, it doesn't happen. No, that's not a criticism. That even you though, even though I know I have, and I know you have, there's parts in the, in while we're writing where I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to murder I mean, I think I've someone. seen that criticism out of like a quarter million reviews or whatever I have now that mm-hmm. I have actually had somebody say that, but it was like kind of an anom. And like that guy's on speed, you know, <laughs> that, that dude's like flaming on meth or something. He's like, this is slow. It's like, okay, man. All right, all right, all right. Just stay cool. Stay cool. <laughs> So, I mean, I do, I have, so I have seen that, but not, not very often. All right. So Shrang, that's, that's the answer to your first question. Yes. Yeah, so no. That's the writing portion. Now okay. marketing. Marketing. And this question's really interesting, Larry. Um, first of all, he compliments Servants of War, which is always good. Thank you. High five to us. Um, and then he says, uh, you know, he, he's talking about how he's, um, a, like a super avid fan of science fiction and fantasy. Um, and, but prior to, he, he discovered the book through listening to the podcast. That's cool. Okay. Super rad. One, thank you for listening to the podcast. And then two, thank you for, you know, buying the book for the ad that Jack recorded for us for it. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I love the ads. The ads you know. are cool. Um, but then he says, um, before he listened to the podcast, he hadn't heard about the book coming out. And then he said, um, he, he, specifically targeting you because, because you're a pretty well-known name. Yeah. Um, how is it that, um, that he hadn't heard about it because of how well-known you were. That's a good and question. And then, um, you know, he, he just wants to, he was curious because he feels like the book should be much more widely read than the appearances of it are. Oh, believe me, me and Steve agree. And we agree. <laughs> we agree. We agree 100%. Now, now part of this, Shereng, and and to anyone who maybe happened to have the same question, um, man, sometimes freaking life is stranger than fiction. Well, book marketing is a, is a crapshoot. And like, so what happened? You never know. So like with Servants of War, we actually are, the book came out the same week as World War Three. Yeah. Which was fantastic timing on a book starring a bunch of people from pseudo magical Russia yeah. and Slavic countries yeah. invading each other. Yeah. The, Our the day was impeccable. Yeah, the day that Putin declared war on, on Ukraine. So that is a little bit of an overshadow. Now, as far as how stuff appears in various marketing thing. That's such a weird thing. Cause like every, every publishing house has marketing people. Yeah. And those marketing people work all the time trying to figure out a way to get books out there. And here's the kicker. Some publishing houses spend a insane sum of money to try to get a book to be a hit and it fails. Oh yeah. Other times they spend almost nothing and it's a huge success. Right. Um, Bayon, our, uh, our, our publisher is, 
uh, pretty chill. Okay. So they're, they're not a flighty publisher. Uh, they tend to kind of like go slow, steady, mm-hmm. and they're always trying new things. I, I think they, they tend to play the long game a little bit more than trying yeah. to get the flash in the pan. Well, because there's, a, there's some publishing houses and, and we can think as we can name some authors that we know where they got on a publishing house. The publishing house spit very little marketing on them and just basically throws spaghetti at the wall to see if it sticks. Yeah. And because the the movie or because the book didn't get turned into a TV series or a movie immediately, they were like, well, it's a failure. Yeah. It's like, or it's that's, like, that's huge. That's we, huge in we YA. We spent almost no money on you at all and your book didn't sell that good. Bye. Weird. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you know, you didn't promote it at all. Exactly. Then they have other writers and they say, well, this writer is going to be the next big thing. So they spent like a million dollars public or marketing this book and the book sells okay. Well, of course it does. Cause they're spending a million dollars on it. Like what was the actual profit margin on that book? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And there's some other writers that me and Steve can name. Well, and, and, and from a financial perspective, you know, they're, they're looking at it thinking, well, Hey, you know, if we spend a million dollars on this marketing, um, not only is it going to help this current book, but it might help, um, the other books that this author has written and it might help the future books that this guy will put out. Yeah. You know, so, so it's not, I mean, in a lot of cases, there's no, it, it's not like it's just a political mumbo jumbo, though there are those cases. There's some where I know where uh, there's some particular authors that for whatever reason, the publishing house has glommed onto them that mm-hmm. this writer is who we think is going to be the next big thing. So they spend a fortune on them, but then you look at the book scan numbers and it's like, it okay, doesn't really, it doesn't really yeah. track. It's like, well, they sold, okay. So they sold 20,000 copies. That's, that's great. That's like, if they do that in a week, that's bestseller territory. Oh yeah, for sure. That's great. You know, except it's like, when you see how hard they pushed this person, they still lost money on them. Oh yeah. So, so at that point they have to be hoping that that marketing push will not only help the book right at that moment, but it'll help it have a longer tail. And it'll help future books. The one that kills me is That's like, then I go to bookstores and I see like that person, uh, that they push that hard and they got the giant displays. Cause all those displays you guys see in bookstores, yeah, like the, the big dumps. displays, those they're are, called dumps. Those are paid for by the publisher. Yeah. The publisher cut a deal with that bookseller to get that. And then the sad thing is, is when you go in a couple months later and all those books. They're on the remainder list. They're, they're in a giant pile, yeah. 80, 90% off. Yeah. They're $5. Yeah. Bin, it's yeah. like two ninety nine for a hardcover. Yeah. You know, that's sad. So on the marketing thing, so what happens when you get a guy like me, so I'm like Bayon's, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm not, David Weber's number one. Oh, for sure. Uh, by far. Dave, David's huge. And then I, I think I'm, I'm up in there somewhere probably. Yeah. Cause you've got, you've got Weber, Ringo, Drake. Yeah. Uh, um, Flint. Bujold. Bujold. Me. Yeah. So you're up there. I, I'm probably, I'm probably, I don't know where I am you're exactly. You're definitely top 10. Oh, I'm, I'm top five. Yeah. Uh, you're my, right there. I might be top three. So maybe yeah. depends, depends on what happens that year. Sure. So, now, one of the things is, so, so Bain's going to market me, but there's certain places they market to certain places. They buy ads always. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and that's the thing. Like, so I'm, I'm looking at, like, I, I don't know where Shering is from. If he's from the U S versus outside of the U S that, that definitely is going to have an impact on, on the type of marketing that you're hearing. Well, one thing I say is, so there's paid for ads. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that our publishing house will aim at. But then there's like the independent places. They choose what they are and aren't going to review. Now, my problem there is because I'm, and this screws Steve, my co-author, but I'm very politically outspoken and 
how it works is most of those places are the opposite of me. So several years ago, this is actually like seven years ago now, um, I raised a stink in the publishing business about the political bias. Right. And I said that, you know, the review places, if you have the wrong politics, the review places like don't review you as much. But if you have the right politics or, you know, in this case, the left politics, you'll get reviewed in all these places. And so this one fanzine uh, kind of book blogger didn't believe me. They thought I was, they thought I was full of crap. So they picked me and they picked another author who has the polar opposite of my politics. Mm -hmm. And they went through and I think they checked like 30 of the big review places. Um, And because me and this other author had both had books come out within a few weeks of each other. Uh, we were both bestsellers, uh, like on the book scan numbers, we were fairly close. Okay. Mm-hmm. And only his publishing house threw a lot more money at him than mine does. And, and we were fairly close though. So they took these two books and they compared them over these review places. And I think he got reviewed at like 28 out of 30 and I had gotten reviewed at two. Um, and that's just how it is, you know, but that's okay because I get most of my, uh, marketing, like the last episode, we talked about the power of fans, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. By far, most of my marketing comes from my fans talking about stuff. Oh yeah. So if you look at that, oh, so actually we were talking about the, the, the experiment Bayon did a little while oh, ago. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So here's an interesting one. So, um, Sean at Bayon and Jason at Bayon, yeah. uh, Jason Cordova and Sean Korsgaard were doing a little experiment because they were looking at some other publishing house that had tried to get a book to trend on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get a book to trend on Twitter. It turns out, yeah. Because, yeah, well, let's be honest, most of Twitter is illiterate. <laughs> so it's not it's not a shocker there. But this other publishing house had actually hired or paid or bribed, I don't yeah, know what they, they did. they pay influencers and so yada got, yada. So they got some, yeah. big, so they had these stats where they got these big influencers to like talk about the book. So they could, then they could see, and they have the hashtag of the book name. And they looked and they say, okay, so... This got like millions of views because they had gotten these big influencers to talk about it, but then there was nothing after. Like, so people didn't retweet it. People didn't talk about it. People didn't have conversations. So it had really low engagement. So that, so he had spent a bunch of money to try this thing, to get a book to trend. So Bayon was like, you know, Larry, you got some pretty hardcore fans. What if you just tried to get your fans to, to get a book to trend and just by talking about it. And so I just went and the funny thing is I was actually banned from Facebook where most of my fans yeah, are right. at the time. So as an experiment, we was like, let's, let's see if we can't get hashtag servants mm-hmm. award trend. Uh, and we did not, but it was actually really interesting. It was pretty close. We, we could have with, with if just more a couple small had, changes. Honestly, if we'd had like another hundred people, we were like right there. But the funny thing is we did this. We spent zero, zero money. Oh, zero dollars. I was, I was, I was answering, I was answering the questions from a concert. Yeah. And so, so it was basically just me and Steve answering questions and on, uh, on Twitter and trying to get people to use the hashtag and just starting conversations and making jokes and answering questions about the book. And at the end, we looked at the stats of us versus the place that had paid the big influencers. We crushed them in every metric. Oh yeah. Except for initial views. Mm-hmm. Because they had hired people well, with yeah, millions of followers. Exactly. And so the funny thing is, so this is the weird thing about book marketing. On one hand, we had this a publisher who spent money on this project and got zilch. And then you had us who spent nothing and got more. And so, I mean. Neither one of us trended. Yeah. But it's like we actually got a much better return on just people having fun. 
So book marketing is such a weird hit or miss thing. Well, and you, you just never know what the environment's going to be. Well, I we mean, were actually so, going to so have... Here, so here's what happened during that time, okay? We had... Okay, so so let's talk about all the weirdness that happened right around book release. So oh we had book gosh. release and World War Three started at the same time. I, I, I was banned from the one you, place you, most of my you fans got, are. You got banned the morning <laughs> the book came out. I hadn't even done okay. anything wrong. Every time we did anything publicly with it, it was like magic. Brandon, during his $40 million Kickstarter, <laughs> would know. go online and just monopolize the entire universe. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking, our timing was I'm so like, perfect. What the crap is happening? Yeah. And and look, we're we're still at the tail end of of like weird COVID crap. And oh yeah, print you know, book sales. Print pr- book sales are down across the board. Yeah, print book sales are across the board just down. The whole industry is weird and depressed on and, that front. And so so the my point here is that Man, you just never know. No, actually, we're going to do some episodes. It feels like freaking, it feels like freaking like, like voodoo with like chicken guts and Oh, it does. And, and honestly, because like you talked to Bayon's um, chief marketing person, Corinda, yeah. and it is, it's just, it's just like read, it's roll the bones and read the chicken guts yeah. and just go for it and see what you can get. It's such a weird crapshoot. And there's this entire book marketing industry. And that, yet, if you go anywhere. And look at our reviews for Servants of War. Oh, they're spectacular. They're freaking amazing. We got really good reviews. Yeah. And and the thing that I'm noticing from most of the reviews is everyone's talking about how, like, like, yeah, this is a, a much darker book than than Larry's norm. And oh, I'm like, totally. well, yeah. yeah, have you met me? I teamed up with a horror. Writer. Um, but but they all they almost all point out like how good the characters are. They talk about how how crazy the ending is. All um, the stuff we've talked about on this show. Oh yeah. <laughs> about Crazy, right? a good book. And, and I mean, we're sitting at, I mean, close to 300 reviews on Amazon at the moment uh, as good. of recording. Yeah. And we have dang near a five star average, which like is crazy. 4.8 it's or like 4.8, which is I've crazy. I've not even listened to the audiobook yet, but I hear it's really good too. I haven't listened to it either. I'm too nervous. Well, I've, the, I hear this narrator is good. This is not like what happened to you last time. I know, but I'm, I've still got PTSD from that. Yeah. If anyone knows a really good narrator for books, uh contact me. You know, we're actually going to do an episode, uh, we're still trying to work the bugs out of getting people on as guests. Yeah. Um, but we're going to actually do an episode about, uh, indie marketing mm-hmm. because that's something that I am like a decade out of date and Steve, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're, we're totally not our area. And so we were actually going to bring on people who are indie book, uh, people and ha- who are very successful and get some tips for you guys on how they market. Yeah. Now the the one thing, and, and I mentioned this in one of our previous episodes, it was, you know, Sean from Bain, he, he did a little thing where he, um, he was on a, it was like a dark fantasy, um, like Facebook group. And someone asked about dark fantasy saying like, Hey, well, what should I read? I, I love dark fantasy. And he's like, well, frick, I mean, Stephen Larry's book is like the epitome of dark fantasy, but without going so hardcore grim dark that you feel like you need to slit your wrists afterwards. Right. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Joe Abercrombie's books, but man, I, they're kind of, they're, they're pretty dark. They're dark. They're pretty dark. And so, was, you know, like Mark Lawrence or Scott Baker, I love all those guys, but, um, you know, I, I, I have to go read like Terry Pratchett after I've read those guys, Yeah, you know? And so, um, the big thing here, Shereng, is if it was hard for you to find the book because of whatever circumstance, whatever weird voodoo circumstances conspired against us to make it so that it was a little bit harder for our book to go out in spite of all of the crazy effort that Bane puts forward for us because Bane's so freaking rad. Yeah, they're great. Um, so if, if you're having the trouble 
then then maybe some of your friends are having the same trouble. Maybe your acquaintances are having the same trouble. That's and so, right. yeah, word of mouth. Word of mouth sells a lot. Huge. When I was um, when I used to work at a bookstore back in ye olden times, um, it was really interesting. If if you were excited about the book and talked about it to people that came in, um, your likelihood of selling the book went up dramatically. And then if you could take that excitement, you could hand them the physical book and put it in their hand, um, you know, kind of marketing psychology here. They started building a positive relation through, through um, emotion and excitement and stuff through to the physical thing that they were holding in their hands, which they build a connection to. And they're more likely to read it, right? They're more likely to buy it. And they're also much more likely to recommend it to their friends. I can't tell you how many times I had people come in that were like regular customers for me. They would walk into the store and if I wasn't there, they'd just turn around and walk out. Wouldn't say anything. But if I were there, if I was there, they would come in and they'd say, okay, Steve, you give good recommendations. What should I be reading? You know, and I'm like, okay, well, you should be reading the new Steven Erickson, a new Brandon or, or, G- or Jim Butcher's latest, um, whatever. And I'd hand them the books. And then a little bit later, their friend would come in and say, hey, uh, my friend said that you recommended um, a certain book by someone. I can't remember what it was. Do you, my, my friends, so-and-so, they look like this. I'd say, oh yeah, I recommended them the new Steve Erickson book. Here, take, here's the first book in that series. Word of mouth is exceptionally, is exceptionally powerful. When Brandon was a nobody author back in forever ago, it seems like an eon ago at this, at this so you know, several $40 million ago. Um, Elantris had come out. Um, he'd gotten some good buzz on it, got nominated for the camel for it. And then Mistborn was going to come out. Um, I, I was at the bookstore at the time and I'd set up basically an event for Brandon and had gotten all of these pre-order, these people to pre-order the book of the first, the first, uh, first novel in the Mistborn series. Um, I ended up having, you know, 200 and some odd copies of the hardback pre-ordered. And it was so much that, you know, Baker and Taylor and Ian Grimm and stuff like that, they wouldn't fulfill the order. And I had to go directly to Tom Doherty over at, over at Tor. And so they sent us cases of books. They were a little freaked out. They're like, uh, are you sure you're going to move? Because this is a lot of books that we're giving you. We're like, it's fine. Just trust me. We sold all those copies. Okay. And then some. It was not a problem. But all of that started because, um, and this is where I, I don't normally pat myself on the back too much. Okay. I'm, I'm actually a halfway humbled kind of sort of person. Um, but in this case, I spent months just talking up Brandon and talking up the new book that was coming. Cause I'd read it cause I was a pre-reader for, for the first Mistborn novel. And so I knew what was coming out and I was excited for it. Um, and I generated so much buzz just through word of mouth. And then those people were generating buzz and they were coming in and asking to pre-order the book for a new author. I mean, look, You've been to a lot of book signings, um, especially before you were a real author. If you are a real author, I'm not sure I'm yet. still not. A lot of your signings, you end up selling what? Dozen books? Oh, when you're first starting out, yeah. Maybe five, yeah. six sometimes? Yeah, when you're brand new, five or six. I think the average book signing in America is still like seven. Yeah. <laughs> so again, this was before Wheel of Time. This is before any of this. Brandon had one book out. And I sold 200 plus hardcovers at a signing That's because huge. of That's word a of mouth. Great signing. Because of word of mouth. And so think about what that means to you guys. If, you know, we, Larry and I were joking the other day 
um, you know, looking at the Facebook group, uh, the Monster Hunter Facebook group, and we're like, dang, man, like if all the, if every single one of these people had bought it, like I'd already be, like, I'd already be writing the sequel. Well, the people don't realize, like, so my, my fans don't, my fans, don't, I don't think they grasp this, but I got 10,000 people on the fan page and they'll all buy a book usually over the, over time though. Mm-hmm. If I could get every single member of my fan page to purchase the book the week it comes out, I would be, with, I mean, then you combine with all their other regular sales mm-hmm. around the country, I would be a top three or number one bestseller, depending mm-hmm. on what was out that week, every single time. New York Times would still not put me on the list. Well, no, they don't matter though. Yeah. New York Times doesn't put me on the list anymore, no matter how, what I sell. Um, but honestly, I would be the number one bestseller every single time. Mm-hmm. If just the people on the fan page buy, and they all do, but they buy it over like a, you know. Three well, months and, period. And, and Larry, I mean, your fans, as great as they are, and they're amazing fans. Um, I mean, that, that's one of the things I've noticed with, um, with, you know, doing this podcast with you and, and, and now writing with you. Um, I, I mean, I've kind of like surrogate, like oh, you know, receive some of your no, fandom. All my co-authors, all my collaborators, I'm like glom on there. The reason I collaborate oh, yeah. is so in the hopes that my fans will find new authors. And, and, and they do. And, and, and I've had a number of people, um, approach me and, and, and just talk about that sort of thing. Like, Hey, you're great. Awesome. Good job. I'm like, nah, but so all these, it, it's your fans are not immune to, um, as great as they are, they're not immune to being burned by authors because there's a number of big name authors that have burned readers. Well, that's the thing. Collaborations tend not to sell as good as solo novels. There's there's less, there's less trust. Yeah. And they've been hurt too much. Yeah. So they're more hesitant. So like, and and like no offense to my collaborators, but like if I write a book by myself and it comes out and it's a Larry Korea novel, then I will expect a certain level of sales. If I do a collaborative novel, uh, with another author who they don't know, then it tends to be a lower thing. Even if it's two good authors, you know, it's like when I work with Ringo or, uh, John Ringo or Sarah Hoyt, that's another well-established author. They Those still don't sell as good yeah, as my strange. solo books. Well, and, and you've got to wonder how much of that is impacted by, I mean, there, there's obviously some, they're thinking, oh, well, Larry didn't write any of this. He phoned it. He phoned this and he just let them do the, all the work. Which is funny because every single time they pick out the scene that they think is, is, is that oh, they're yeah. always every single time backwards. Oh yeah. <laughs> every time. Well, and, and for Larry's been pretty clear about this before, but you know, I'll just reiterate like Larry's super hands-on as a collaborator. You know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. You don't phone it in. Yeah. But how many of these big authors that have put out like, you know, five books in their giant series and they just haven't written anything in the past 15 years. Yeah, we've joked on the show about James Patterson before, has a basement full of writers chained to computers, you yeah. know, that he just stamps. Yeah, I mean, him and Nora Roberts and probably Brandon Sanderson at this point. If he wanted to, he um, totally could. So, like, there, there's so many factors that go into book marketing. And so I, I guess, I guess, Shereng, the big thing here, the big takeaway here is, um, uh it beats me, man. <laughs> but on that, on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> but if if you you know if you like the book like you say you do, and 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 we, man, th- thank you so much for the kind words. First of all, um, you know, recommend it to your friends. Um, if if you have friends that that trust your taste, you know. Recommend them our way. Recommend them to to the other authors who who you love, who who aren't us. 
Um, that word of mouth will help will help a lot, and it also helps Bane quite a bit. And so, just keep that in mind. That this is all weird magic voodoo. We don't freaking know. Um, you know, we just you know we just write the stuff and then hope and pray, and then uh, you know hope that our hope that our supporters will uh, will ask us really good questions so that we can talk about it and, and say at the end of the day. Uh-oh. That's all the time we have for you today. Thanks, guys. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Now, as me and Steve have said before, taxation is theft, but they're still going to throw you in jail if you don't don't let them steal from you, so you need to pay your taxes.